0: Well, here we are, week two of a six-week journey. One month to live, and uh, just for clarity's sake, uh, clarity's sake, day one of the 30 days starts today. This is day one, everybody. So you read day one in the book, okay? And then tomorrow you read. You got it. That's it. All the way, okay? And then we'll hit day 30 and then we'll have kind of a few days to recover as we go into Holy Week and then we'll hit Easter, uh, all cylinders firing, uh, I hope. Jesus, of all people, lived conscious that his time on earth was short and his departure from this life was imminent. He lived like it was about to happen all of the time. And in fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that he would spend so many years working, we presume, with his father in a carpenter's shop, before spending those final three short years before uh, he died, before they crucified him. And he lived the whole of his life with his death looming. Even at his birth, people were talking about his death. The gifts that the wise men brought, for example, at his birth, were a reminder that he was born to die. The shepherds turning up was a reminder that this life would be sacrificed one day. And so his death loomed in a way that we try not to live. We try to live like death is out of the question, out of the picture, that we're going to go on forever until we stop. But because of his consciousness... He lived more intentionally than perhaps any other person. And we're trying to draw out some of the uh, aspects of Jesus' intentionality. Aspects of the way Jesus sought to seize the moment and make the very best of his days. And we're going to look at four principles over these next four weeks, starting today with living passionately. Somebody should tell us, right at the start of our lives, that we are dying then we might live to the limit, every minute of every day. The truth is, you can live without living. We know that all too well. In fact, you can have a a full life, a life packed with stuff, and yet be barely alive. And we thought last time, last Sunday, about the difference between a life that happens to you and a life where, in the name of God, you make it happen for his kingdom, and for his purpose. We can live shallow, we can live small, or we can live large. I, I love the way Andrew uh, helped us to in our worship just a few minutes ago to get caught up in the fact that we're, some, we're, we're part of something so much bigger. Uh, and when God made this world and this universe that is so big, so large, and as he breathed life into it, I cannot imagine for a moment he breathed that life into it for us to live small, to live shallow, everything in this world talks about living deep living on the edge, living uh, to the limit C.S. Lewis describes though uh, the tendency within all of us say too often we're like children children who settle for playing in mud puddles when the beauty and the immensity of the ocean is just a few feet away you can be living but barely alive And that's why Jesus said, the reason I've come is that instead of living barely alive, you might live full of life. This is the verse that we'll uh, learn together with the children, we'll use it later on in our service. The thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. But you have to fight for it. You have to fight for it. That's my experience, it's your experience. In fact, that's what Jesus says here. You will have to fight for it because there is a thief that comes to steal it from you, to rob you of it, to destroy it before your very eyes. True life can so easily be snatched from each one of us. And in this world we live in, it strikes me the thief doesn't have to do very much. We're pretty good ourselves at snatching that very life from us. If we want this life, we'll have to fight for it. It's that fight that we call passion. Are we going to live passionately? Are we going to grab hold of it, this life that God has given us, with all that we are? In fact, nothing much happens, does it, without a passion the driving force behind all great art, all great music, literature, drama, architecture, all great achievements. Passion is what makes things happen. Passion propels athletes to break world records, pushes scientists to discover new cures for diseases. Passion is what gives us life. The kind of life we were made for. Passion is a god given thing. He's a passionate God, and he invites us to be passionate with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I love the way the message uh, translation uh, interprets this verse. Love the Lord your God with all your passion, all your prayer, and intelligence, and energy. And that's what it means When it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, it does not mean love the Lord your God with all your pump. In fact, in Jesus' day, uh, they they, they would seek the, the root of your will and your emotions, not in your heart, but in your bowels. So it would say sometimes of Jesus, when it talks about him being moved with compassion, literally he was moved within his bowels. Jewish boy meets Jewish girl, I love you with all of my Bows. It's got a certain ring to it, hasn't it? Hey, All of my bowels. That should get things moving. Sorry, an unfortunate mix of metaphors. With all your heart, with all your passion, you might say, well, I'm not a very passionate person. Uh Uh-huh. I don't, believe it it may be that our passion has become suppressed or lost under a rubble of pain and disappointment it may be that we express our passion in different ways and we might focus our passion on different things but we're all made with the capacity to live with passion made in the image of a passionate God. Jesus said, didn't say, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, but not you, because you're not very passionate. Life to the full. But you've got to fight for it. That's why Paul said, said, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your passion.'" Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You've got to fuel it. You've got to stoke it. You've got to keep your passion alive. No one else can keep your passion alive other than you. I understand what we say sometimes when we say, I come to church on Sunday and it helps me bring me back. It makes me alive. I understand that and there's a rightness about that. But there is a sense in which nobody else other than you can keep your passion alive. And if you want to live big, if you want to live in the light of this God who's made this glorious world so that the stones will cry out if we don't, if you want to live large, then we've got to be people that keep our passion alive. Because you can lose it. You can have it robbed or stolen. You can kill it yourself or let someone else kill it for you. The trouble is, of course, passion as a a word has become sullied, hasn't it, in our language? True passion is about self-giving, not self-getting. Passion is what can I give? What can I contribute? What can I put in? What will make this situation alive? Whereas lust says, what can I get? Another word very similar is enthusiasm. It's not a word that Christians have always readily embraced. You might have been brought up in a church where enthusiasm never got into the top ten adjectives. En, meaning in or within, and theos, meaning God. Literally, in God. Enthusiasm means in God. In Him. It's in Him, in His heart, in His life in his joy, in his vibrancy, that we become alive and enthusiastic. We should be the most passionate people because we're connected to a passionate God. In him is life, and that life, said John about Jesus, is the light to all men. And it's not just for our benefit, is it? This passion, this coming alive. There's a wonderful quote, you'll find it in the, in the book if you, uh, if you read it. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Who do you prefer to be with? People alive or people half baked? What the world needs is people who have come alive. What this world needs is a church that's come alive. A church so alive, they say, for heaven's sake, literally, what's happened to them? Because there's so much life that it can't be contained within the people there. The rush that I talked about last week is the cleverest, most obvious strategy of the thief to rob us of this passion, don't you think? The thief uses rush to squeeze the passion out of us. If I was to say to you, hands up all those who haven't got enough time each day to complete all you're trying to do, you'd put your hands up. If I said all of you are just too tired to put your hands up, you'd put your hands up. (laughs) The rush. And it squeezes the life out of us. Someone has described it as life without Margins. Life without margins. Everything is back to back. Your margin has been described as the difference between your limit and your load. And when your load gets close to your limit, or as we often observe, our attempted load is over our limit, then we're stressed. Hey, stressful people aren't needed in the world today. You know that, don't you? The world does not need your stress tomorrow. It needs you fully alive. And imagine, this, keeping this metaphor of the margins for a minute, imagine reading a book where there were no spaces between the words, and there were no margins on the page. What it was trying to say might be utterly brilliant, but it would become totally incomprehensible, utterly chaotic, because there was no space, and there were no margins. Maybe everything you're trying to do is utterly brilliant, but it becomes chaotic and incomprehensible because there's no space and there's no margins. And we wonder why we feel so stressed. And we wonder why we've lost our passion. So how do we keep our passion alive? Let's look at that uh, uh, story that David read to us just a few moments ago. Page 1032 in the, in the Bible. Just flick it open in front of you. I, I hope it'll help. And I, I want us to try and draw some principles from this story about how we might keep our passion alive. The world needs people that have come alive. Go to the end of the story on page 1033, uh, verse 26, uh, just to start us off. It's always good to, to get to the end of the story. helps us to relax. And we know that there's a good end. Good end. Everyone, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. That's not a bad end, is it? By anybody's standards. Filled with awe, we have seen remarkable things today. Now think about it with me for a moment. What's the thread that goes through this story that culminates in Luke 5, 26? Jesus highlights it just a few verses earlier in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith. This was a group of people with their friend who were utterly intentional, against the odds about what they were going to do that day. They were focused. They were determined. They had faith. As Jesus put it, they refused to give up because of the crowd. They refused to give up because of the roof. They refused to give up even when Jesus started saying things they weren't interested in, and we'll come back to that a little later. So, think about the story. They approach the house and it's crowded full of people. That would have been enough to put many of us off. Have you ever thought, I've got to go forward for prayer at the end of the meeting? And then you see a few more people go forward, oh, they're too busy. No, just me. And it puts us off. So there's this massive crowd. Everyone in this crowd wanting to meet with Jesus, wanting to hang on his every word. And they can see this crowd and maybe hear it in the distance. No point, chaps. They're absolutely exhausted in the heat of the day carrying their friend. It's hard to carry someone over a distance. There's no point, chaps, going any further because they can see the crowd. But no, these guys are focused on what they are doing that particular day and if we want to keep our passion we have to get to Christ and to do that we have to do what they did we have to do something drastic we have to do something drastic if you want to live passionately then my suggestion is you'll have to do something drastic I don't know whether it's really possible in fact I know it's not really possible, just to tweak a few things in our lives and live passionately. And that's the temptation. If I tweak half an hour here, if I leave half an hour earlier, if I get up a bit earlier, if I go to bed a bit later, fit a few more things in, then maybe I can live this passionate life. No. They had to do something drastic, like a hole in the roof. I want to suggest that maybe if we're going to capture something of the essence of Jesus, we similarly will need to do something drastic. Maybe ask a drastic question. What would I do if I knew that I had one month to live? It's a drastic question. It's a drastic question that may help me to do a few drastic things. It's unlikely if I knew that I had one month to live that I'd tinker around the edges of my life. I know, I'll get up 15 minutes earlier. I will try and have my horlicks before news at 10. It would completely alter the way we looked at our lives, everything would be up for grabs. I'm going to focus sharply on what's really important. I'm going to discover those things that I thought were so important, but actually, suddenly, if I've got a month to live, I realise they don't matter anymore, and I'm going to ruthlessly root them out of my life, because I've only got a month, and why would I waste time with things that I now can see in my heart of hearts are going nowhere? The trouble is, we don't do that second bit much. We see something that's good that we want to do, and we add it, into our lives? That's why I think this question is brilliant because it calls us to get a perspective on everything. You realise what's important and you realise what isn't important. Drastic action involves integrity. Integrity is when my heart lines up with my actions. Integrity is when my heart value, my passion lines up with what I actually do. Most of us, far too often, myself included, live with an integrity gap. We believe something is a value in our hearts, but it doesn't find expression in the way that we behave. So on a very superficial level, we might say, looking in the mirror, I want to look great, but I don't exercise very much and I don't eat very well. On a much deeper level, we might say, I want people to come to know Christ. But we never actually tell anyone about him. Or we might say, my family really matters to me, but at those major family moments, I just wasn't there. God has first place in my life, but I can't remember the last time I really listened to him. And so we live with this integrity gap. We believe something in our hearts that isn't demonstrated much by our actions. A discrepancy between belief and behaviour. Nothing drains passion quicker than an integrity gap. We're all out of sync. We're all all over the place. We begin to feel a bit of a fraud. Nothing lines up anymore. These guys in the story believed that they had to get their friend to Jesus. And they acted on that belief, whatever the obstacles that came in their way. They didn't stop until they'd lowered him down there in front of Jesus in the middle of the crowd. Doing something drastic also involves intentionality. And this takes us back to this thing of not just adding. Not just adding. To be intentional, we need to see what's important and we need to see what isn't and act upon it. If you're going to make room in your life for what's important and allow passion for that to fill your days, then you're going to have to let go of some stuff that isn't as important. I think that's the hardest bit. My experience is that most of the time you hear someone talk about something, you read a book and think, that's a good thing, I'll do that, and you add it. You ever tried doing that? You add it. You never think about what you might take away, you just add it. And the reason our diaries are so ridiculous is because we're good at adding and we haven't matured enough in mathematics to learn take away. So we just add. So someone says a really good thing like, spend more time with your friends so you can tell them about Jesus. I'll add that in. And it's really good to read your Bible. I'll add that in. Andrew says, why don't you start memorising it? I'll add that in. And you come to church on Sunday, like this. Totally overwhelmed. Because you add, and you add. And nobody seems to say, hey, take something away, give yourself a break. We need to understand what's not important. It might be right, in a broader sense. It might seem good, it's not a bad thing to do but if you're going to prioritise your days, that your passion will rise, then maybe there are things that aren't important. These guys knew what was important and they knew what wasn't. That was their strength. They knew what was important, they got to get their mate to Jesus. They knew what wasn't important, the roof. Most of us would have struggled with that. We would have got stuck with the roof. My, whose roof is it? Is it insured? Will we get it fixed by nightfall? I thought they said rain on the weekend. Health and safety, you said that. You know, is, is there a health and safety harness? How are we going to get him down? I didn't bring my pickaxe. My best Sunday trousers are going to get dirty on the roof. We get stuck with the roof, don't we? Have you got something in your life that's represented by that roof? Something that you're stuck with and really it's not important. They didn't care about the roof. Roofs can be fixed, they've got to get their friend to Jesus. You know, we've all been in church meetings somewhere else, of course, when the main item goes, brand new strategy to win the world to Jesus. Last agenda item. Colour of the basement door. Debate, discussion, whoa. Because we get fixed on the things that aren't really important. What is the thing or things in your life that aren't really important anymore? You will not grab God's big thing for you if you're holding on to lots of other things. Common sense, isn't it? You can't grab unless you let go. You can't grab with a full hand. You see, we're all well chuffed with the people uh, that, that won gold at the Olympics. We're chuffed with them and we're impressed. We're impressed about two things, aren't we? We're impressed that they should achieve greatness in their lives, that they should grab hold of something like an Olympic title. And we sit in our armchairs and we think to ourselves, hey, I'd like to have done that. How cool would that be to have won an Olympic gold? And the second thing that we're impressed with as we think about it a little bit is everything they let go of in order to grab it. When we hear about their lives, Four o'clock in the morning, most of us are barely alive, and Rebecca Arlington's swimming up and down. It's late at night, we're still awake, she's asleep. The thing she let go of in order to grab the thing that really mattered. I'll just challenge you this morning. What are you going to let go of that you can really grab what God's asking? The trouble is, we're so mesmerised in the rush, aren't we? Have you ever looked at your diary and said you can't give anything up? Come on. Am I all out of sync here? Am I the only weird one in this place? No, don't answer that. <laughs> it's just, it's just, that was a rhetorical question. How dare you suddenly use that as an opportunity to speak after all these years of being silent during my sermon? Gordon Bennett. We go, it, it's, it's all seems so important. We're in a rush. We're stuck. I, I dare you. Take some time out. Get away. Say, God, show me what doesn't matter here anymore. Because there's enough time, isn't there, you say, Simon, you say this a lot, it's because I'm trying to convince myself. There's enough time in every day for me to do everything that's important in God's agenda, isn't there? Jesus was the most effective person that ever, ever lived. And he never rushed. It makes me mad about him. How did he do that? Find a verse where Jesus rushed. In fact, when they wanted him to hurry up, he seemed to dilly-dally. Yeah, whatever. One day, Lazarus has died. One day, glory of God, whatever. All in good time. It's so different. So these guys, they did something drastic. They, it all lined up. They said, we've got to get into Jesus. It doesn't matter about the crowd. It we'll, doesn't matter about the roof. We'll sort, we'll sort, we'll sort. And then, you've got to expect the unexpected. They hadn't expected the crowd... They hadn't prepared themselves to dig a hole and then they get lowered, they lower their friend in front of Jesus and they hadn't expected what Jesus would say next. Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the blokes thinking, oh for goodness sake, we did not go through all that for this guy to have his sins forgiven, we want him to walk. Can you imagine the disappointment in these guys? Absolutely exhausted, dripping with sweat, they've eventually got this, their friend to Jesus, who's been paralysed all his life, and Jesus starts doing spiritual stuff about sins and everything. If they were mad, they managed to keep their mouth shut for a moment, which is just as well. They were learning to receive the unexpected. God's ways are not our ways. If we live on God's agenda, there will be surprises. There will be unexpected things. The trouble is, we want to live passionately, but we also want to be control freaks. Now, whatever you say, I know some of you are control freaks. You're not going to tell me otherwise. We want our lives all in neat compartments, all nicely contained. We know where it is and when. We know what's happening and how and who. And it's all safe. And when it's all like that, all our ducks are lined up, we feel safe and secure. We're as dull as dishwater, but we feel safe and secure. All lined up. It's not like that in the passionate life that God has called us to. We help ourselves feel safe and secure by planning everything and under control. But if we're to live life God's way, we need to learn that we're not in control, but God is. And it's safer in this life to be out of control with God than to think you're in control with yourself. It's safer to be out of control with God than to think you're in control with yourself. We've lost our passion because we control it all. Because we expect the predictable, and then we live small and we live closed. And God is anything but predictable. We need to embrace the unpredictability of heaven. On every page in the Bible, it did not go as they expected, did it? You've read it, haven't you? Some of it. It didn't go. Nothing was predictable. Nothing was predictable from Abraham, from Moses. Nothing was predictable right the way through with King David and the glory there. Nothing was predictable. But somehow God was in control. And they learned it was better to be with God and it seemed out of control than it was to try and be in control themselves. How did these men feel? They get there, there's a crowd. They didn't expect the crowd. They're going, it's going to be one of these days you ever wake up in the morning and something goes wrong early on you think it's going to be one of those days? Oh. they knew where Jesus was they knew when he'd be there they thought they'd just snuck in with their friend and suddenly there's this big crowd what are we going to do? then they get up on the roof and they start hacking away if only we'd known we would have brought a shovel and they didn't know it's one of these days they're sweating all, all their clothes are dirty and they still don't know are they going to get their friend to Jesus? they lower him down and Jesus starts talking about sins forgiven and all they want is him healed it's all out of control. It's all out of control. I want to say, at the moment with God, it seems all out of control. It's never more in control because then Jesus says, "Hey, get up and walk." Whew. What a relief! What a relief! God's going to do some unexpected things if we want to live with passion. Two final things, very quickly, about living passionately. I think we've got to do something drastic. We've got to expect the unexpected. God's going to use us in ways we hadn't imagined. And thirdly, you've got to create God's space in the middle of a crowded day. Or create God's space in the middle of a crowded house. If we want to live passionately, we have to create that space. And it took a lot of effort for those men. And it takes a lot of effort for us to create God's space in a crowded day. How much effort will we make? You've got to fight for it. Turn, turn with me in the Bibles to page 1003. 1003. There's Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. Mark 1:35, page 1003. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Okay, so you've got Jesus in mode, creating God's space in a pressured life. He's gone away. He's moved out of the places uh, that are grabbing his attention. And then there's the disciples who are in mode more familiar with ourselves. They go, hey Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Jesus, you're disappointing people because you're not with them. Jesus, hurry up from the place of prayer and get back to healing and touching people because that's what they want you to do. That's what the disciples are saying, isn't it? Get back. Get back to the job, Jesus. And notice what Jesus says in the very next verse. Jesus replied, hey, let's go somewhere else. What? These disciples have just left a whole bunch of people that are making demands on Jesus. They go to Jesus and say, you've got to come back because everyone's wanting you. And Jesus' replies, is, well, well, let's move on now. Let's go somewhere else. Jesus is saying, I'm not living my life under the expectations of other people. Some of us do not stand a chance of living passionate lives because we are crushed under the expectations of other people. The things other people place on us. You should do this, you should do that, you should be there, you should be there. And it's crushing. And for some of us, the hardest thing will be to step out of the crushing expectation of others and say, okay... I'm going to create space for God. And I'm going to find out what's important on His agenda. And I'm going to let go of things that might seem good and right, but they're just not good and right for me, because I need to live with space, I need to live with margins, I need to come alive. The only antidote I know, the only key to freedom from the expectation of others, that so powerfully dominate our lives sometimes, is to create God's space in the midst of a crowded day. There is nothing like being with God that renews or totally redeems our perspective. I need that like I need oxygen, and so do you. The problem is that the expectations of others scream at us. They shout at us. They press in on us. They jump out of our diaries towards us. They dominate our to-do list. People are tugging at us all the time. But Father God isn't like that. He doesn't tug. He doesn't press. He doesn't scream and shout. He waits. He waits. And one of the saddest things, surely, is to get to the end of our lives and have been responding to the tug and the pull and the pressure that everybody else is is making on us. And only then realise there's a Father in Heaven who waits for us to make space in our crowded day to be with Him. And if we ignore Him all our lives, we get to the end, He'll still be waiting. Let's create space for him now, because nothing alters my perspective like being with God. Nothing fuels my passion for life like being with him. Nothing reorders my world. I've got to make the space. And finally, I've got to keep a constant reminder. I've got to keep a constant reminder. I tell you, get up, said Jesus, take your mat and go home. Why does he have to take his mat home? Why can't he leave his mat there because he can walk? Why can't he drop it off in the bin outside? Why take it home? Maybe because that man like you and me need reminders every day about the goodness of God. Every day he would see that mat and he would smile and celebrate God's goodness in his life. I want to invite you to look around your home and ask yourself, what are the reminders in my home of God's goodness to me? What are the visual aids to what's important in my life? What are the prompts, day after day, to make sure I live this passionate life and don't get sidetracked with a whole load of stuff that just doesn't really matter? If you haven't got any, then maybe think through this one month. What are the things I need in my home as reminders of what really matters. At home in our kitchen are loads of pictures of family. Why? Because we can't remember what they look like? No. But they're pictures of times that we've spent together. So that in the midst of the hurly-burly, they're staring back at us, they're mirroring to us day after day. That matters in the midst of all this. So I'll make that a priority today. In my study there 's a big picture that 's probably a bit too large for the space, but there it is of two African women with children on their back walking the miles through the heat, maybe for water, maybe on their way home. A reminder to me in the hurly burly in this world that says, "Simon, you need this, and you need that, and you need the other." People in church that tell me I need an Apple Mac, a reminder in the midst of all of that that actually these ladies walking those miles have discovered something I haven 't found. Here, and it puts my life in a different perspective but I'd still like an Apple Mac (laughs) if I'm honest and God needs to work that in me because man can live without Apple Macs you're not sure are you whether that be true do you see things that, that, that just say, hey, hey, hey let, let's not get stupid here. Let's keep the main things the main thing. Surround your life with the main things. Don't lose them. Remind us. He looked at his mat every day and he rejoiced in the day he got to Jesus and there was space there for him. If you haven't got any visual aids in your home, get some visual aids that remind you about what really, truly matters. Death is more universal than life. Everyone dies, but not everyone lives. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Let's pray.